Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'm so happy you're here with us today. Thank you so much for joining the show. Today, you're listening to episode 123, and I'm talking with Tim and Kirsten Ritchie. This is a married couple. They are newlyweds, and you will very much hear that in this episode. They're so darn cute. Kirsten just finished up nursing school at Yale University to become a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, and she's also a sub-three-hour marathoner. She ran a 257 at the Hartford Marathon in 2016. Tim Ritchie is an American distance runner who is super speedy. He has a 211.56 marathon PR, which he ran at the 2017 CIM Marathon to win the race. So, you know, back in the day, I had Sarah Hall on the episode after she won that race. Well, I could have had Tim Ritchie on too, but I didn't even think about it. So now I'm so excited to have Tim on the show and hear about his running experiences as well. He has dreams of uh, joining the Olympic marathon team in 2020. So I just love talking to people who have a passion and are excited to work hard. And he's got some really good mental strategy ideas and ways that he gets through tough workouts and races that I took to heart when I listened to this episode. If you guys are loving the show and you haven't already done so, I would so appreciate a rating interview on whatever podcast app you are listening to this show. You guys, I set that goal to reach a thousand rating and reviews on iTunes back in December before the end of 2017. And hey, guess what? We're halfway through 2018 and I'm at 957. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Nothing like hitting a goal six months behind. Dream big, right? So if you haven't done it yet, though, uh, I need 43. Am I doing my math right? Yeah, 43 more ratings or reviews over there on iTunes to tip over that thousand. So break out your phone real quick and leave a review if you feel so inclined. All right, guys, I hope you're enjoying your summer and I won't keep you waiting any longer for this conversation with Tim and Kirsten Ritchie. Enjoy. All right, well, today on the show, we have Tim Ritchie and Kirsten Ritchie. We have a married couple coming in. I think you guys are the first duo I've had on the show, like a married couple, which is exciting to me because, you know, my husband and I, we run a lot together and talk about it a lot as well. Yeah, we're we're excited. We're really competitive people, so that we're the first married couple is a <laughs> thing for us. Yeah, you're the first ones. That's <laughs> that's hilarious. You're taking your competition not just running, but in the podcast scene as well. Well, I just I just listened to your episode with Mario on the morning shakeout this morning. That was like my get ready for the day uh, listening. So that was fun. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I had a fun time with that one for sure. So let's introduce you guys to everybody. Um, Kirsten, you are in school. You go to the, well, wait, you're graduating in May. You're in the Yale School of Nursing. Are you graduating like now? Yeah. So May 21st is graduation, but I finished up my final classes yesterday. (gasps) Congratulations. Thanks. Were you pumped when I uh, proposed this date? Like, oh, good. It's after my last (laughs) class and test. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a long process, but it's exciting. Okay, but you're so you're it's not just nursing school. You're going for psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. So, are you officially an NP now? What does that look like? 
So it was a three-year program, and I was uh, spent a year getting the RN license and then two years getting the master's. And I have to sit for board, so I'm not officially an NP yet. But um, hopefully I'll sit for that in the next month or so. When do you take your boards? Um, to be determined. <laughs> okay. You have to schedule that. Yeah, and there's a lot of credentialing, and um, it's a kind of long process to get everything into the ANCC, which is the American Nursing Credentialing Center. Okay, and where do you envision yourself working? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so mental health, um, and I actually am going to be working in Massachusetts. We'll be moving next month. Um at a behavioral health network. So it's kind of a community-based um, behavioral health. So outpatient and then um, some uh, community-based acute treatment centers and maybe doing some consultation with pediatricians. So my specialty is um, children and adolescents. That's that's intense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's challenging, but... Um, it's really rewarding, so I like it a lot. Why um, did Why did you like? What made you become passionate about that? That you wanted to pursue that as your career? In college, I was a neuroscience major, so I am kind of a nerd and really like the brain and kind of how that works. And then I contemplated doing research for a little bit, and so I worked for a while doing that, and then decided I needed to interact with people. So. Um, yeah, I kind of stumbled upon nurse becoming a nurse practitioner just because I like the nursing model and kind of the holistic approach to care. And yeah, then kind of researched some programs and what it would take. And I really liked Yale's program and focus on um, becoming an NP, but also impacting the um, healthcare system as a whole. So. so is Yale School of Nursing, I feel like that's probably really hard to get into. Um, but you could say that. I, yeah, I don't think I'm that, uh, special. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be modest. I mean, the school of nursing at Indiana university is really hard to get into. So I'm just Mm -hmm. assuming that Yale is also very difficult to get into. Yeah. There, there are a lot of smart people. It's kind of, it's intimidating sometimes, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's, it has been challenging for sure. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed my time here. Well, so Kirsten also, she has ran three marathons. Uh, she went from a 321 to a 301 in Boston to a 257 after a night of not feeling so hot. Um, so we have a very talented runner on our hands as well. And then um, let's introduce Tim and then we'll kind of bring full circle back around how you guys met and everything. Okay, so Tim, you recently won CIM Marathon, the national championship there. And it's fun to have you on the show because right after that win, I also had Sarah Hall on the show. Oh, awesome. Yeah, now you can check off both. Well, I should have been on it and had you on and Sarah on, but that was before I was being so close-minded and basically only having females on my show. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I'd I'd rather be on with Kirsten than uh, on solo, so it works out well. Oh, you guys are cute. (laughs) My mind is um, 
very in the running scene. I am very female focused. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, the women's American marathoning scene is like insane right now. But now I'm kind of kicking myself like, why are you not having these men on like Tim Ritchie also won the CIM marathon, you know, and to be completely honest, I didn't even pay attention to the men's race. So um, you can kind of scold me for that now. Uh, no, it's fine. I think it's time that uh, female distance running is at the forefront. So I'm with you. Like I tend to follow those races more than the men's races as well, because it's like uh, the depth of competition there is, is definitely at an unprecedented level. So I think it sounds like it's safe to say that the marathon is kind of your jam now. You you ran a 61.23 half in 2015. Um, that 211.56 at CIM, that's that's your shiny PR right now, right? Yep, that's yeah, that's definitely my best marathon uh, by a fair bit. And then you did tow the line at Boston, and we all know about Boston. Tell me what happened. When did you drop? Why did you decide to drop? What was what was your issue? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy that the elite field had a fifty percent DNF rate, but the full field only four point five percent dropped out. What's so, up with that? Explain that it, to me. Why? Yeah, well, I guess <laughs> I guess uh, the pack runners are a lot tougher than we give them credit for. So <laughs> I was like, I was totally blown away. Um, I thought for sure when I ended up in the medical tent that the place would be bursting at the seams, you know, minutes later. But um, when I saw the stats after the race with the, the total dropout rate only being somewhere between four and five percent, I was like totally in awe of all these people who, who finished, uh, it was, it was unbelievable. Like anybody who started that day was amazing. And anybody who was able to cross the finish line in Boylston, like has my respect for life. Yeah. What, what mile did you end up in the medical tent? Uh, mile 19 was where, Oh, I, you made it far. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, that's about when Galen was in the medical tent too, right? Yeah. We were both on the, uh, sagging wagon back to the hotel together. So, um, yeah, it was like, I think that's the point a lot of times where your glycogen starts to run out anyway, yeah. um, 90 minutes or so into the race. And when you've been using so much fuel to keep your body warm as well, um, the bonk just hits you so much harder. And so for me, like I was getting hypothermic and my whole body was shutting down and it happened, it seemed in a matter of minutes where I was having a great race running with a, a great pack. And then before I knew it, I was just like came to a screeching halt and started shivering uncontrollably and um yeah had to make the the tough decision or my body had to make the decision to to stop there for for safety reasons you know i so i didn't even realize you had made it to 19 it it is so crazy because you know we think of the elite runners and we're thinking okay did some of the 23 people drop because they're like screw this i'm not wasting this day or it sounds like most of you dropped because you literally were sick and hypothermic and you really couldn't go on, you know? Was that your decision? Like you had full intent on finishing the race regardless of time, but you just, you were sick and hypothermic? Oh yeah. Like if I could have crawled my way down Boylston Street, I, I would have. Like for me, the Boston Marathon is the pinnacle of distance racing. And it's a race that like <clears throat> is really special for me. Uh, Kirsten and I both ran the race in 2013 the year of the bombings. And so it's kind of a, it's a really special race for me. And 
um, not being able to finish is like totally crushing. Um, and so, yeah, if it was like, if I could have physically taken another step, I would have taken that step. But I, I really believe I was at my physical limit um, and at the limit of, of what was safe to, to continue. So, and I think that was true for my competitors as well. Like um, everybody has a, has a great respect for this race and a great, you know, commitment to, uh, to the race itself. And so I don't think anybody was dropping out um, because the conditions were, were tougher than they were or, or whatever the case may be. They were having a bad day. Um, I think any one of us given the chance would have, would have kind of kept pursuing the finish line uh, until we were physically unable to do it. Yeah, it makes me think of Molly Huddle because I don't even know what place she got, but, you know, she ran like 250-something, and I think. Don't quote me on that, people listening. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. She she might have squeaked under 250, but, I mean, I saw her coming down Boylston, and I really had this, like, really deep sense of respect for her coming down the finish line. Because, man, I think it looked like she was probably running a nine-minute mile at that point. And she was just, I mean, it looked like a death march. And just the fact that she's in this, like, peak of her career. And no matter how bad she felt, um, obviously she was able to make it to the finish line. And just seeing her finish regardless of place and time just really made me respect her as a runner. Because I think sometimes you think of these elite runners in the pinnacle of their career and if they're not having a day, they might just call it a day and and not make it to the finish line. Yeah, she's yeah, she's really impressive. Like, definitely, she's somebody who wants to win. Yeah. But for her, like, the competition is primarily with herself. And so, even when she was out of the top ten, miles away from a personal best, like, she could still challenge herself to the max. And and that's something that I've always looked up to her as a competitor for that reason. Now, tell me this. I really, honestly, you guys, I didn't plan for this to be so Boston focused, but now I have all these questions running through my head. Um, tell me this. Did you run, were you running with Yuki at all during the race? No, nobody was running with Yuki. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, like the, in Boston, like the first mile is really downhill and even the elites like try to hold back and save some energy and are aware of the Newton Hills kind of throughout the first 16 miles or like they're knowing that there's this tough section coming up, but uh, Yuki's first two miles on the Boston course were were crazy fast, and like I hit the I hit the first mile way ahead of what my expectations were, and I was m- like meters and meters behind him. So I was like, uh, <laughs> that's when I knew, like, okay, this race is just not going to be what anybody thought it was going to be. Um, so no, I mean he he did all right. Like he had his race plan, and he's like, okay, what's the best way to, way for me to win the race? And it wasn't what I would have drafted, but it, it worked for him. And um, that was really, really impressive to, to see his performance. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think we uh, everyday runners who were spectating and cheering everybody on that day really, maybe some of us did, but I didn't take into consideration so much what these uh, non-front runners for lack of a better term, like how they could take advantage of the weather situation, you know, like with Krista Duchesne getting third and Sarah Sellers getting second and Yuki winning. It's like, I didn't even realize, Oh, we have like a historical moment happening here where these people who would never normally be considered, um, the people that are going to win the race could really win or get second or third. So it's kind of cool that, 
it seems like Yuki had it in his mind right from the start. Hey, this could be my day. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And like, I even got a text message from my coach on the bus ride to the start line. And he said, he's like, this is going to be a screwball day. And yeah. Anything, anything can happen on a day like this. So he's like, this could be your chance to be on the podium in Boston. And, you know, he was right. Like, yeah. if I was going to have the opportunity, like that would was a really good opportunity. And so... Um, yeah, a good friend of Kirsten and I's was fourth place overall in the women's race. Oh, Rachel and, Highland. Yeah, yeah. So she was a running running buddy of Kirsten's when we lived in Boston. Oh, cool. It was just it's just awesome to see like local runners doing really well. And the tenth like the tenth place male was also like a Boston a Boston guy that I used to run with, and it's just awesome to see um, them get their get their moment in the sun or, or moment in the driving rain or whatever you want to say. <laughs> well, man, does that like disappoint you even more that you had to drop? Cause you're like, that could have been me up there on the podium. Oh yeah. Yeah. This one is like, I've had plenty of bad races, but yeah, I think this one stings the most just cause, um, I just love this race. I've been watching it since I was a kid. I went to BC and like, just right on the course. Um, like if I could do well in a race, like it'd be Boston, you know? And so, yeah, this was a tough one, but, but seeing like Rachel and Dan Vassallo and some of my other competitors, like really achieve it definitely. And Des winning, like it definitely, um, eases the pain. Um, running is like such a community thing. And so even if it wasn't my day to be successful, I, I, I do feel like I get to share in the successes of, of some of those champions. Totally. Well, while we're on the Boston topic, let's just talk about this. Kirsten, you ran a 301 in 2013. Were you going for sub three that day? Um, no, I had no idea. I <laughs> moved to Boston in 2012 and then joined the BAA. And so um, I just started running with some girls and I think their goal was to break three. But I was pretty new to it and new to marathons. And so I just had a great training cycle with them and, um, yeah, just kind of followed one of my teammates the whole race and started to feel good. So pulled away a little bit. Um, but that bear was never really in my mind. I was, you know, I'd run three twenty, so I was hoping to, <laughs> to PR, but I mean, it was also a perf, it, the weather, you oh, know, sure. but, um, yeah. So then after that, I was like, Oh, well, Dang it. I didn't break three. You were obviously super close, though. And I mean, that was your second marathon to run a 301 on your second marathon and just kind of kind of be training with the girls in your area um, that had to kind of make you realize, oh, I'm kind of good at this. And like, let's not fail to mention, though, that you did run in college. You walked on to your college team as a pole vaulter. And then you ran distance. So tell us about that, because that's an interesting uh, thing to me. I don't even think when I was in high school track and field that any girls at my high school were pole vaulting. So tell me about that. Yeah, um, I was a gymnast. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So then in high school, I kind of dabbled in a little bit. Um, I ran maybe like a season and a half of, of track. Um, and got injured. And then in college, I kind of walked on as a sophomore um, just to try to beat someone in pole vaulting. Um, and yeah, they they needed girls. They only had one girl pole vaulter at the time. So uh, I was lucky because there's no way I would have been able to walk on any other team. <laughs> but 
Yeah, I did that. And then I stayed to do research and met some of the distance girls and just really fell in love with it. And I think um, it was my introduction to the running community and kind of, you know, getting forming really, really close friendships through running. It was the first exposure to that. And um, I wasn't great at it, but um, yeah, I really liked it. And so I kind of talked to my coach and I was like, can I please do it? <laughs> and so I tried, I tried to do both and um, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So then my senior year, I switched to do distance and I actually did steeple, a few steeple races, um, took a few swims in the pool, <laughs> in the, in the <laughs> pit. And yeah, then it was just distance from there. Okay. So, um, I want to hear about how you guys met because in 2013, you were both running the Boston Marathon, but you didn't know each other yet. And then how did you meet? Okay. So, um, yeah, so we were both running for the BAA at the time. And um, we had mutual, a lot of mutual friends. And we signed up for a race in Hollis, New Hampshire. Um, The Hollis 5K, it's this really fast downhill 5K. And um, my friend, actually, Steph, who I was training with for Boston 2013, I was driving up with her and her now husband. And... And we were really late. And so Tim and another teammate grabbed our bib numbers. And so I met him for like 10 seconds at the start when he like frantically gave us our bib numbers. And we had two minutes till the gun went off. Um, I don't know. What, what was your end of that? Yeah. I, I mean, and then, I mean, I had researched Kirsten when she was on our little uh, email chain about transportation to the race. And I, was like, I had researched her. <laughs> <laughs> Like, who is this person that I've never met before? Um, so I was looking forward to it after uh, stalking her on Facebook. So the <laughs> opportunity to meet her at this race. Um, and it was fun. Like, we had a, we had a good time at, at the event. Um, and then we had a great, they had, like, a great spread after the race with, like. The great spread was, was plastic boxes of cookies. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Chips Ahoy cookies. So I had like, I don't know, a dozen cookies after the race. <laughs> after and, a 5K. Yeah, you know, you earned it. <laughs> <laughs> and then we all went out to uh, dinner together afterwards. And like I had a big stomach ache from like racing and eating all these cookies. And so I just ordered a, a sweet potato for dinner to try to like settle my stomach and have something to eat. And then um, I was with a lot of people who I was kind of meeting for the first time and they all were a little suspect of my eating habits. And they're like, yeah, this kid, he won the race and he's only eating a sweet potato. Is this like what we need to be doing to be competing? And um, yeah, so we met there and then we um, we played the long game and, and didn't really talk to each other for about six months. So it was, uh, <laughs> it, was it took us some time to kind of get the ball rolling in our relationship. But I mean, meanwhile, we, we all had like running friends. So I'd go on, I went on a run the next day with like Rachel and her husband actually. And he was like, do you think that we should all just eat sweet potatoes now? Because (laughs) that's what some Richie eats. And so, you know, there was definitely talk, you know, I, then I talked to my friend Steph and her husband, you know, about Tim and there's all this middle school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so then we kind of re-met, I guess, at our club holiday function, and at that point, like, we had 
essentially painted a picture in our minds that we were going to start dating. And so you had painted. Okay. <laughs> I had painted this picture in my mind that we were going to start dating. So at this holiday function, I kind of clung to Kirsten and, um, yeah, I don't know. I had a great time. Yeah. And then we kind of had our first date not long after that. I think it's funny because it sounds like Tim was really researching you more than you were researching him. Yeah, I got I got my information from my friends, from running running friends, mutual friends. But yeah, it was my one one good friend in Boston. She's like, I think there's a love connection there <laughs> way, way before. Uh, and so I give her some credit. Okay, so her. I mean, that was... Not, I mean, I've been married, I'm, I feel <laughs> old. I'm not that old, but I've been married for 10 years. So I'm thinking that wasn't that, 2013, that wasn't that long ago. So you guys got married when? Last summer. So we had been dating for, I don't know, just over three years. Yeah. 14, yeah, just, we were dating for just over three years when we got married. Okay. Yeah, that's what I did, but I was like four, apparently, when I got married. <laughs> uh, 25, but still, that seems young these days. So this is exciting, you guys. I can tell you're very much still uh, newlyweds, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're enjoying it. It's been like, yeah, I guess eight months now. Okay, eight months. Oh, yeah, you're totally newlyweds. So yeah. do you run it's together fun. a lot? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> never, ever? Yeah, I mean... Tim went through a lot of injury at one point, so when he's coming back, we kind of did. Yeah, I'd say we've probably logged together, I don't know, maybe 60 miles in four years. At mo- yeah, most. Really? Because, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a pace difference, but that doesn't matter. You're run- going out on easy jogs, you can run together, you know? So what What gives? Why is that? Well, well, first of all, Tim's easy run is not anywhere near mine. <laughs> And he got a lot of slack for it in Boston. You know, his easy run was like 6.30 or 6, I don't know, I don't even know. But, you know, a lot of my friends, their husbands or significant others would run 7.30 or 8-minute pace with us, and Tim would never do that. So <laughs> so, that, so we'll leave that. But Is no, that just always... because it's not comfortable to run that slow or what? Yeah, I just like to hammer. <laughs> always? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Now, actually, now that I've gotten older and kind of transitioned to marathoning, there's definitely days where I can't quite do what I used to be able to do at 25. But um, I don't know. Kirsten and I, like, we both love running, but I think it's also like our time away from each other in a way. Like, it brought us together, but it's also like we both use running um, as like a centering activity, and so to be able to just go out and run and think and meditate. Um, that's, that's been really important for us to like allow ourselves to, to have running independently. So, um, I was talking to Mary Johnson about this a little bit and she told me that you guys really run based on feel and effort rather than specific paces a lot. And she actually told me that you recently, Tim, like recently got a GPS watch. Yeah. Um, so I run for a club, the Saucony Freedom Track Club and, uh, a lot of them were getting watches from Polar, so they sent me one to try out, and I throw it on for every now and then for a run, but I've kind of, uh, yeah, just been a stopwatch guy since <laughs> since I started running. So how do you think that method works for you, and tell our listeners why that's a successful way to train, to not be so dialed into obsessing over specific paces? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it just gives me a greater enjoyment of the run. You know, I, when I don't put expectations on the on the run, um, I can just kind of be free and, and let my body and let my mind get out of the day what it needs to get out of the day. Um, I've I've also been doing this for a long time at an elite level, and so I have pretty good awareness of pace. So even if I don't have a GPS watch, I could usually estimate within 10 seconds a mile how fast I'm running. And so um, like I don't really necessarily need the watch for that immediate feedback. But my college coach, like we just did a lot of fartlicks um, and mainly because I was training alone. And so he would just say, all right, go out and do six by five minutes, you know, and he wouldn't give me a pace or an effort or anything. You just go out and run six by five minutes hard. Um, and so I just kind of really was drawn to that. And on one day that might mean I'm running five minute pace on the pickups and another day it might mean I'm running five thirty pace on the pickups or if I'm going up a hill or if it's really hot, like I can still get out of the workout what I need to get out of the workout, um, without seeing the data and thinking that, oh, I thought I could run this pace and I couldn't. And so, um, for me, it works out really well. I think for, for new athletes, maybe there needs to be a balance. Like I think they need to, you know, figure out what easy pace feels like, figure out what a moderate pace feels like, equate effort to pace in some sort of general relationship. And so sometimes it's really helpful with beginner, beginner athletes to, to put a little bit of a guideline on them just so they're, they're getting a sense. Because what I've learned through coaching is that a lot of new athletes, they just go hard all the time. Yeah. But I also think like from the middle of the perspective I mean I used to wear a GPS a lot and then I was like constantly getting injured and I think it's this a lot of runners have this kind of perfectionist type a personality and are always judging and measuring ourselves or I'll speak for myself I'm always measuring and judging myself and so having another um, metric or another you know thing to judge me or kind of tell me if I'm doing something right or wrong um created this negative mental energy so when I kind of got rid of it it was like it was super helpful and kind of exactly what Tim said learning to run by feel um but I was also not really training so pace you know I don't have a sense of pace (laughs) I think I'm running nine minute miles and I'll be running seven you know but I think it helped because the last three marathons I've run um, I haven't used the GPS and I've had no sense of pace at all and just purely running by feel. Yeah. You know, I did that this past year. I did, uh, before I got pregnant, I was able to get a half marathon under my belt and a marathon under my belt. And though I was running with my husband and, um, he was kind of, uh, for, he wasn't pacing me, but he was running with me and I knew that he was probably going to hold me accountable to a certain pace if you could. Um, I really enjoyed that freedom of not having my watch on because um, I felt like it gave me the opportunity to just listen to my body. And when I took, you know, when I came through the half at my full and this past fall, um, I saw the time on the clock and I thought, okay, that was probably a little too fast, but I still felt like I was really dialed into my body and what it could handle regardless of what each mile was clicking over. So that's really refreshing to hear that you say you didn't run any of those three marathons with a watch. And that's that's uh, different for a new runner because I feel like a newer runner, and I call you a newer runner because it was only your first three marathons, 
Um, I feel like a lot of people wouldn't be willing to give that up so soon in their marathoning career. Yeah. And sorry. So I've actually run five. So the oh, first I'm sorry. Two, and it's okay. It's the first two I did. And then the past three, I haven't. Okay. And so, yeah. And so that was the first time I broke three, I wasn't wearing a Garmin um, and a similar, it was a really low key marathon. And so I went through the half and I saw a time too. And I was like, huh. And, you know, my goal was just to run a Boston qualifier just because I wanted to be able to run that spring. But um, safe to say you did that with a 257. Yep, I did qualify. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, real quick, I want to jump in and thank a sponsor of this episode, making this show possible. And that is Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes drinking mushrooms. Yep, drinking mushrooms delicious and easy to do with their wide variety of superfood and super good for you beverages from mushroom coffees to matchas to hot cacao and multiple mushroom blends. They have it all. And they also have a new product out, the mushroom lemonade with charcoal and chaga. All right, guys, I know it sounds weird, but we're all about the detox these days, right? This is a lemonade that could actually make you feel better. The mushroom lemonade with charcoal and chaga is your occasional all-in-one support for digestion, skin well-being, and detox. Free from the sugar-packed ingredients of a typical lemonade, this jet black powder combines the antioxidant properties of chaga with activated charcoal for digestive support and lemon to assist hydration and skin well-being to help you glow from the inside out. They also have lattes and a couple of our favorites over here at the Hine House are the chaga elixir and the lion's mane elixir. You guys can get 15% off of your order with Four Sigmatic when you go to foursigmatic.com slash another and use the promo code another to get 15% off. That's foursigmatic.com slash another and use that promo code another to get 15% off your order. When you support a sponsor of this podcast, you are directly supporting the show. So I thank you for that. And thank you Four Sigmatic for supporting this podcast. All right, you guys, let's enjoy the rest of my conversation with Kirsten and Tim Ritchie. So I was listening to, I mentioned earlier, I was listening to your interview with the morning shakeout, Tim, with Mario. And I loved hearing you talk about the last two miles of CIM once you'd taken the lead and how you walked through that mentally. So, um, and I think when you talked about your race strategy as well, it kind of really, uh, rings true to what we're talking about here when you said that the goal wasn't really a time or a place. It was the strategy of how you ran the race the first compared to the second half. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, w- I was coming off of, uh, some less than stellar marathon performances and I just wanted to like come up with a race plan that I thought was going to get the most out of myself. But I mean, but also put me in a position to be competitive with the other people in the race. I mean, um, I, I wanted to win. <laughs> so that was definitely in the back of my mind. But, um, but more than anything, I wanted to, to finish the marathon strong. I feel like looking at my marathon career in the long term, what would benefit me the most was um, setting myself up to have a great last 10K and, and a better last 5K. And so um, I, I did have my watch, uh, and I was like taking mile splits through the first half just to make sure that I wasn't ahead of a sustainable pace. Um, and then once I hit about 12 miles, I just started racing. And at that point I was just, 
if there was somebody ahead of me, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to try to catch this person by mile 14. I'm going to try to catch that person by mile 16. I'm going to try to catch this person by 20. Um, and then just trying to like really hone in on my competitive instincts. And, um, yeah, then towards the end, you know, just really trust in your gut and, um, digging deep and, and embracing the pain of racing, um, kind of using that to your advantage. Um, I think in a race, everybody experiences that pain. And it's just, if you could see it as something that you can kind of harness and uh, relish in, you're, you're going to be successful. And if you see it as something that you need to avoid or manage, um, the race is going to be pretty tough. Okay. That is huge. And that I, everybody, you need to say that again. Everybody needs to hear that because that's what we're scared of when we go to the starting line. We're scared of the pain that's going to happen, but you talking about embracing it and thinking, okay, I, I can handle this. And if I just embrace it, it's going to get me to the finish line that much faster. How do you, how do you do that? I mean, how do you will that within yourself? Well, I think, I mean, I think some of it's natural. Like I think some people are naturally competitive and, and others aren't. Um, I think culturally, um, pain avoidance is something that we're kind of taught or something I, maybe I was taught, I don't know, um, from a younger age. And so just kind of learning to shift that and realizing that pain is a part of life, honestly, like, mm-hmm. uh, nobody's immune to pain or struggle and, uh, running has been a great outlet for me to n- not to learn to not avoid that pain, but to to like I said earlier, like accept it and embrace it as the path to uh, success or fulfillment or or joy even. So, um, like I think life experiences have taught me that like going through tough times or moment of moments of pain and suffering kind of leads me to. Um, just a, a more full sense of, of who I am. And so in racing, that's that in, in a microcosm. So it's like, okay, if I can hurt more than these other people, if I can really um, find a meaning and purpose in the pain um, of racing, then then that will lead to, to concrete success, you know? So it's, um, it's, it's been a long, it's been a long practice. I think you can train it somewhat in your running training, you know, through, work, through workouts and hard efforts. Um, you can mentally learn to embrace the pain. But I think the biggest thing is just kind of paying attention to to your life in general and um, kind of observing where there's pain in your life and and how you how you can handle that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's so true outside of running too. the hardest things that I've been through in my life, you know, like miscarriage and losing my grandma. And I'm just thinking of like those sad moments in my life when my mother in law passed away, like those moments ultimately make you stronger and you can't avoid them. Those are life moments that happen. So to kind of put that into perspective with running as well, it is, it is so, so true. And culturally you're right. Like in America, at least we are born into this. Most of us are born into this world of privilege where everything is meant to be, you know, you try to make things easier all the time. You get an epidural when you're going through childbirth because it doesn't hurt as bad. And I mean, hey, ladies, I, I've had two epidurals, so I'm right there with you. But that's such a, that's such a true and real concept. Yeah, yeah. That's what, that's, I mean, that's one of the things I love about sport. And one of the things I love about coaching is trying to uh, encourage people to see what sport can do for them in, in their lives at large, you know, like 
discipline, hard work, pride. And, and those are things that my high school coaches taught me when I was first learning the sport. And it was, it was great because it laid a foundation for what has been a pretty successful running career, but it's also definitely molded me into the man that I'm trying to become. So I've always seen like sport as this great teaching, uh, instrument as well as just an opportunity to, to have fun and, and to do something that, that we love to do. So before I get this wrong, Kirsten's ran five marathons. I thought she'd ran three. Um, you've ran five marathons, correct? Uh, five marathons and 19 miles. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. Exactly. You, you've towed the line of six. Um, yes. and so you've mentioned that two of those five were really great. And I, I want to hear you talk about how you keep your head in check and not let those not so great races, uh, define your career and def- get to you and not make you think like, oh, like, you know, you, you still have the motivation and drive even coming off a bad race. Because I think a lot of times people have a bad race and then they get discouraged and they think, well, maybe, maybe this really isn't my thing. So how do you, how do you have that motivation? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I just love it. Like I love running (laughs) and I love competing and, um, I just feel really lucky to be able to, to do it. Like to, at the, at the, to be able to compete at the level I get to compete at is like a real joy and it's a real privilege to be able to run professionally for Saucony and to, to be an elite athlete, but also just simply to be able to get up in the morning and put on running shoes and have two legs and a beating heart. And like that, I try never to lose sight of just the fundamental joy of, of running. And so no competitor, or no runner really is immune to bad races or bad days. Um, but what makes the sport special is that there's, you know, God willing, another start line that you can get on in the future and, and try to get the most out of yourself. And so for me, every race, I just try to um, just maximize my potential. And some days I do and some days I don't. But with every race, there are the objective goals of winning or running a time. But there's also the subjective goals of um, staying mentally strong or giving it your all or um, running with gratitude. And so even if I fail by my objective standards, I, I try to never fail by my uh, subjective standards. Do you get race morning or night before race or week before race nerves or do you get ex- more excitement? Yeah, it's a balance of the two. Like it's definitely, you're definitely anxious. Um, but the, yeah, nervous for sure. Like I try to tell the athletes that I coach, um, when they get nervous, I'm like, that's good. That means that this means something to you. You know, if, if you weren't nervous on the start line, I'd be a little worried that you're just kind of, eh, whatever, like let's go run this race. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that I think I'll miss when I'm done competing at the level I'm competing in is like, yeah, those mornings when you wake up and like, I can't even drink my coffee because my hand is shaking (laughs) (laughs) and you're like, just trying to, um, yeah, just wrap your mind and heart around about what you're preparing your body and mind to go through. And it's, it's fun. Like for me, that's a huge part of it is, uh, the mental, the mental preparation, you know, the week of the morning of the five minutes before the gun goes off. I think there's a healthy way to be nervous too, though, because some people get in their heads so much. And I mean, you're competing at a level where you're trying to win marathons and podium at Boston. Um, 
But for most of us who are just trying to improve our times and yes, test our abilities to the best that we can. I mean, I think it's so important to make sure that we don't let those nerves get away from us and, you know, like suck the joy out of everything else we're doing just because we have a race coming up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's like, um, yeah, you want to have the nerves because like I said, it, it means that this means something to you, but I always try to counsel athletes on like the race matters, but it doesn't define who you are before the race or after the race, you know? And so you just go in there, control what you can control and be, be satisfied with whatever the result may be. Do you get nervous, Kirsten? I do. I mean, the last, like I was saying, the last few marathons I've run, um, I've been thankful just to be able to start, I think. And so that's kind of detract, taken away a lot from um, that, that nervousness. But I think, you know, I tend to find myself getting more anxious and stuff when there are other things that might not be going well in my life or that, you know, I can use the race as kind of a distraction and put all my energy into that. And I think that sometimes when I start to use running or races or race results to, like Tim was saying, like define who I am, um, that's when, you know, you lose perspective. But, um, you know, like Hartford 2016, I was really sick the night before. And so I was thankful just to be there and attempt to run. Um, Boston, I was, you know, before that, I was just happy to be at the start of Boston. Um, So I found, you know, to get rid of the nerves, just being really grateful and just being like, glad to be at the start, thankful to be at the start. Um, You know, I was told when I ran my first Boston, just enjoy it. Like, you'll never have a first Boston again. Um, Just savor it. um, Take in everything. And I think taking that um, perspective into each race is really helpful, too. Yeah, and it's something that people take for granted when they haven't been injured for a while. Or I felt the same way when I ran Monumental this fall because... Monumental the year before I was 10 days postpartum and I was just remember being out there cheering for people being like so tired and so exhausted with my newborn baby like oh I would give anything to not that I didn't want my newborn baby don't get me wrong but like I just would have traded spots in that moment to not be so tired and to be physically fit and ready to race so I remember very very clearly um uh, November, whatever it was this past year, like when I got to the race thinking, I'm so glad I'm here. And I have a 12 month old who is sleeping through the night, <laughs> you know? Um, so that perspective is, is super important. And yeah, when you have those streaks, I think you forget about it sometimes. Like you forget that it's such a cool thing that you actually have the opportunity to be there. Yeah. I think always kind of respecting the race and like letting go of your ego and just kind of remembering that, um, you, you get to be there, you know, not you have to, but you get to. And I think that's really important. So you're coming off a stress fracture injury, your metatarsal, uh, you just graduated. We talked about that. So what's, I mean, obviously taking your, your boards is next and starting your new job, but like what's next for you outside of that and with running? Um, Again, just, you know, I've had a few injuries. So coming back from injury, I always just try to, what went wrong? How can I get better? Um, and so getting back some, you know, I've been trying to do a lot of strength work. Um, I don't have any goal race in mind. I mean, I'd love to kind of get more into trails and maybe 
longer distances um, and where we're moving in Western Mass, I think there's like beautiful trail systems there. And so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, yeah. And I don't know what the next, what's on the calendar. T- tell me about the strength stuff that you're doing. I'm, I'm, it's so important when you're getting yeah. back to like not think, oh, I have to build my miles, build my miles. It's like, well, let me get everything straightened out first. So tell us about what you're doing with that and what your plans are with that. Yeah. So, um, when I wasn't running, I was trying to get into the gym like two to three times a week. And because of my pole vaulting background, I kind of know all the Olympic lifts, but I think the really important ones are like squats, um, deadlifts and a lot of single legs. So single leg deadlifts, um, Bulgarian split squats, um, some upper body, which is pretty pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what else? Lunges, um, and then now I've kind of been doing a little like lunge routine as a warm up and kind of after runs too, just to kind of activate the glutes. And then even like all the band work and stuff, clamshells. Um, so prioritizing that over um, anything else. Yeah, it's so people are so easy. It's so easy for people to just push that to the wayside. Well, I want to get my runs in first and. If you just give up a run a week for that instead, I mean, ideally, once you get training, you can do both, but that's so important and people skip it and then they get, what happens? They get injured again, right? Right. Yeah. And I had someone tell me once, like, you, I mean, you, you have to prepare your body to handle the mileage. Like you don't, you don't just get to run, you yeah. know, you have to build your body so it can withstand the runs. So, um, Kirsten, you train, you coach under Mary with Lift Run Reform, and then Tim, you coach with McCurdy Trained. So, tell me about that. Either one of you can tell me about that. Yeah, it's it's been fun. Like I've been uh, with McCurdy Trained for almost two years now. Plus, I've been coaching uh, in college um, for eight years. So, it's just always been part of my identity. And then Kirsten's kind of just picked it up in the last couple months with Mary. And it's been, it's been fun. Like we've been learning a lot mm-hmm. from each other. Like we'll sit at the table and work on our training plans for our athletes together and kind of bounce ideas back and forth off of each other. And, um, you know, if I've had an experience with an athlete that I think could help Kirsten kind of prepare and plan for one of her athletes, like it's and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been awesome. It's been fun to like, um, yeah, just learn, learn a lot from each other in that, in that realm. Yeah. And I think that also my running background has helped Tim coach athletes like me, if that makes sense. You know, he, before I started coaching, he'd be like, well, what do you think about this and this? And I'd be like, well, from someone who's not an elite runner, (laughs) this is what I think. And so I think that that's kind of helped him with the private coaching that he does. But yeah, I mean, Tim is a wealth of knowledge, so I'm really lucky that I get to ask him questions. And then <laughs> we went to a Jack Daniels clinic together with Mary, which was cool, and that was that was kind of fun to get to do stuff like that together. Yeah, that's that's fun when you're. I always say to my husband, I'm like, "Can I just use your brain for like ten minutes, please?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Kirsten has a has an instinct for it. Like, I've been lucky to be to have been coaching for eight years and have learned from some great mentors along the way and um but it's been fun to like see like Kirsten's got a great intuition when it comes to coaching so it's been like she'll see things that I won't see immediately and so it's just it's good to have a another perspective there like I feel like we although we're working under different umbrellas (laughs) like I feel like together we're, we're a pretty good coaching 
Well, yeah, and it is good and healthy. Like in life in general and in any workspace, it's good and healthy to have someone to bounce ideas off of. So just the fact that you have that access right there 24-7 is really good. Yeah, and we we try not to be competitive if we have athletes uh, (laughs) racing on the same weekend. Like, it's like, oh, well, my athlete PR'd by six minutes. You know, (laughs) we have a tendency to turn pretty much everything we do into a competition but um everything yeah but this has been fun because like it's definitely uh all about the athletes and so we kind of rejoice in in each other's athletes successes okay so how many athletes do each of you coach i mean i know it it changes per season but give me an an idea yeah i've i'm somewhere between 10 and 10 and 15 because um like i said i also coach uh i coach at yale um or I've been coaching at Yale for the last two years and going to be starting a coaching job at UMass Amherst uh, in a month. And so I've kind of, yeah, kept my athlete roster, my private coaching athlete roster somewhere between 10 and 15. Yeah. And that's kind of where I am right now. Um, Just wanted to keep it around that when I start and then see what's doable once I, once I start working as well. But yeah. What does coaching at Yale look like? Um, for me, well, I've just been a volunteer there for the last two years. So when I graduated Boston College, I started as a paid assistant coach um, on the track and field, men's track and field team there. Um, so I coached for six years at BC, and then I moved down to New Haven to be with Kirsten um, and just asked if I could volunteer with the team at Yale. And they said, yeah, you have six years of college coaching experience. Sure, you'll, <laughs> you'll be our most experienced volunteer. Um, and that's been like, for me, it's been a huge joy. Um, I've learned so much from like the coaching staff there and from the athletes there. They really, um, you know, I feel like I was, I was worried that it would be hard for me to coach somewhere that wasn't my alma mater. Like I had such mm-hmm. a passion for Boston College and such a loyalty to, to the kids. Um, but then when I came to Yale and met the team, it was just really easy for me to uh, just embrace them and sorry <laughs> and um yeah they made me feel right at home so it's it's been fun um to be a part of that i always wonder like in the nba when people change teams i'm like you know how do you how do you go from like playing with all your heart and soul for this team to going to another team or like coaches for that matter you know like coaches in the nba or wherever so it, that's interesting that you went into it worried that you wouldn't be able to coach with the excitement, but it just kind of naturally happened. Yeah. Yeah. I think like I, maybe I don't feel as connected to Yale university as sure. I do to Boston college, but um, it just, it was a good reminder for me that coaching it, it's about the athletes. Like it's just about caring for the guys that are in front of you. And so they were so welcoming to me and so appreciative of me. And um, that really, I, I mean, I felt really special and at home there. And so, uh, yeah, it, it took no time at all to be, um, to just want them to succeed and want them to be happy and want them to, to be fulfilled. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, it's been fun. And I'm hoping and I'm sure that when I get to UMass in a month, it's going to be the same thing that I'm just really looking forward to meeting that team and, and just wanted to really dive in there and um, get to know those guys and try to 
try to help them achieve their goals, you know? So that's, yeah, that's why we coach is to help athletes succeed and help them maximize their potential and be happy. And, um, I think, uh, a good coach can do that anywhere. So you recently took a job with UMass coaching there. Yeah, I was hired, um, this spring and we'll start in the summer there once their, uh, outdoor track season is over. Very cool. Okay. So you ran the 211 in at CIM. Uh, what are your sites for 2020 trials and beyond now that the Boston fiasco is over? Like, what's next for you as an athlete? Yeah, I mean, they so they just announced the date and site for the 2020 trials, and it's going to be the end of February in Atlanta. And so that race is on the calendar now. And so the training and the racing is going to be geared towards making an Olympic team in 2020. And so, um, yeah, that's the goal. Like I'm going to continue on as a Saucony sponsored athlete and still definitely be very much, uh, an athlete as I transition into a, a bigger coaching role. Um, but we'll see, like, I hope to run a fall marathon. I definitely want to get back to Boston in 2019. Um, but for now it's just kind of, now that we have the 2020 trials on the calendar, um, just taking a look at that and working backwards, trying to see what, how we can set ourselves up uh, to maximize that performance. Do you, what fall marathons are you looking into? I'm um, just kind of looking around now. It's, it's, it'll be a little trickier this fall um, because my coaching schedule will be a bit more strict than it was the past two years. Um, but I don't know, like I'd love to come back to New York and try to have a good experience there. Um, I, I had 22 great miles and four. <laughs> And for less than great miles there in 2016. Um, and that's an awesome race. And they have an amazing uh, staff, the New York Roadrunners. And they, they do such a great job. So that would be a lot of fun. You know, I thought about CIM going back there to try to defend a title. Uh, we have a great one here in Connecticut, Hartford Marathon. So um, just kind of looking around and trying to see what would best fit my coaching schedule which would best set me up for a strong build up to Boston in 2019 um and which one might be the best simulation of what I might experience at the 2020 trials so um right now kind of like just got through the morning phase of post Boston now I'm in like the physical rebuild phase and so acceptance yeah acceptance. (laughs) (laughs) so my coach uh Tim Bro, he coaches the Saucony Freedom Track Club. Um, so he and I will kind of sit down a little bit and kind of maybe sketch out the next six months, 12 months, two years, and uh, see what makes sense. Yeah, but would you do, really do a race like Hartford? I mean, I'm just wondering with your the level that you're competing at, would that be kind of a, I don't know, you wouldn't be out there with too many people that could even run near your pace. So would that be good or bad? Um, I mean, any race you could learn from it you know some races like a lot of times in the marathon you end up running alone sure um at least over the like over the last few miles and so having that experience to mentally be able to go out there and kind of lock lock in and get mile through mile by yourself would be a, a mm. great one and i'm not necessarily saying i'd be alone in hartford there's a lot of great marathonic talent in new england um, well i'm yeah but, maybe i don't know i don't know how big the race is how big is it um, this one's pretty good. So I ran the half marathon there in the fall and, uh, set the course record there, but they, the Hartford marathon foundation has done a lot in the last couple of years to highlight distance running in new England. And so they invite a lot of regional elite athletes and 
honestly, like, yeah, they're all they're all great. I mean, the winning time in Hartford has been you know two fifteen, two sixteen, okay. which is pretty competitive. And so, um, plus, there's a lot of younger athletes that are transitioning to the marathon, and you know that'd be a, that'd be a great one. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to it for sure. Like, it's just a matter of when I what opportunities might be out there for me as an athlete and where my coach thinks um, I could get the best, uh, the best experience and, and the best prep for, for 2020. So for 2020, who are, you know, like I keep mentioning, we follow women's running so closely. We've got Galen, we've got you, we've got Dathan Ritzenhine. Who are the other males that are like up for podium spots. I don't even, I mean, for the top three at the 2020 trials are, who are the dark horses? Who are your competitors? Yeah. Jared there's a lot Ward. of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, like, yeah, I think, I mean, Galen obviously is, a, is a super talent and he just ran 206. So he kind of is establishing himself as a front runner. Um, but I think there's a lot of us kind of lurking that think we have an opportunity. And that's the great thing about the marathon trials is, like, I think there's going to be a lot of guys going in there that believe they could be the guy that could make the Olympic team. And so um, we're kind of going through this changing of the guard with Ned retiring and Ryan mm-hmm. Hall retiring. And, um, and there's a lot of, of great guys that are um, performing really well. So I think some of the best guys like Shadrach Biwat is a guy who gets no love and he's been top five in Boston twice and top five in New York twice. And he's like, um, he was third place in Boston this year and he, he's a, a great athlete trains with Brooks and he's based in Sacramento. Um, plus yeah, my Saucony teammates, I mean, Parker Stinson and Noah Drotti and Jared Ward. Like I think all three of those guys could be people that could step up and, um, and yeah, make an Olympic team, which would be, which would be great. We want to fill the podium with Saucony athletes. So yeah. <laughs> um, so let's see. Okay, make I make note to self have Shadrack on your podcast, <laughs> Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, he's he's awesome. We've been competing against each other on the road circuit since 2012, and this is a this is a great group of guys on the U.S. road racing circuit that I've gotten to know personally, and um, we're definitely tough competitors with each other, but we're also really supportive of each other's careers, and um, so I think yeah, I mean there's I mean I could rattle off 15 to 20 guys that honestly I think it could be on the top three at the Olympic trials. So it's uh it's going to take a, a great effort for sure. How has someone like Meb, uh, been an inspiration to you? I mean, I, I mean, Meb's an inspiration to everybody. Right. <laughs> so I think the one of the things that like, I admire most about Meb is, um, he does a great job balancing his public appreciation for, running in the running community with with also just being a very tough competitor and so he's somebody who's a, yeah like i said been a great ambassador for the sport like we're people are afraid to race map because he, he's tough even when he's 42 years old like you, <laughs> you know he's gonna show up and you know he hates losing and you know he's gonna um give you everything he's got every step of the way um at the same time he'll be the first person to shake your hand after the finish line he'll be high five in the masses when they come in and so he's somebody that I really respect because he very clearly doesn't take his talent for granted and he very clearly sees it as an opportunity to share something with, with the world. <laughs> you know, he's used his running to um, bring so much goodness uh, to the community and, and that's something that 
you know, beyond his amazing running resume has been something that's been a big inspiration for me. Well, let's, um, let's get to some fun end of the podcast questions. And this is fun because I get to ask both of you and I get to hear, hear both of your answers. Um, did I send you these, Chris Kirsten? Yeah, you did. Okay, we, we perfect. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I'm actually being interviewed for someone else's podcast tonight. And I was looking through her questions like, oh, man, people actually probably I can tell when my guests have like looked at them and when they haven't. But I was like, man, people are probably like, man, she gave me homework to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, so we'll start with you, Kirsten. What's one thing professionally or personally that you haven't done that you'd like to do? Uh, I mean, professionally, being in P, so that's a big thing. Um, and I think kind of creating change in the mental health world and creating a voice for, um, you know, kind of destigmatizing mental health. That's one thing. Semi answers your question. Uh, personally, start a family. <laughs> Did you hear that, Tim? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> laughing no i mean like yeah i mean that's a we took a giant step towards starting our family <laughs> when we got married uh, uh last august and so i think definitely personally we just i don't know we've been so happy uh together so we're excited to see what the future holds for us as a as a married couple but um professionally geez like i'm always uh, i always look up to kirsten because um like, I just think nursing is like the is the greatest profession. It's I feel like it's just this so uh, you're so fully giving yourself to other people um, in just a very concrete, personal way. Um, and so I hope I want to professionally as a coach, I want to emulate Kirsten. Like I want to bring the passion and care for individuals that she has um that she radiates in her own profession i want to bring that to mind so i want to like continue to see coaching as an opportunity to affect change in people's lives and um you know i want i want to win i want teams to win i want kids to win races um but I, yeah i want to yeah maybe see if i can learn from the nursing model that kirsten demonstrates so well and, and bring some of that into coaching i echoing those sentiments yes nur any nurse that's ever taken care of me i'm so grateful for you so thank you <laughs> Um, all right. So what's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Marrying Kirsten. <laughs> That's not an it was for me. <laughs> I love that. We're, re we're revisiting this in 10 years. And I mean, I'm sure I am sure you are going to say the exact same thing, but you guys are just so cute right now. Oh, well, that wasn't going to be mine. <laughs> <laughs> what's your answer? Uh, oh, I was going to say finishing school. Um, and marrying Tim. <laughs> like I've seen Kirsten work through this three years of grad school and like, this is an accomplishment for sure. It's just, I don't know, like you, all, her and all of her classmates, it's just been amazing to see the, yeah, the work that went into it, the diversity of the work. Like you're, like she's talking about labor and delivery, plus she's at the mental health clinic, plus she's working as an RN, she's trying to run. She's like, yeah, it's a huge accomplishment. I'm looking forward to graduation. So I feel like we're both graduating from yeah, you are. from nursing yeah. school. Tim's been through a lot. Oh, totally. Yes. When when you live with someone and they're going through something so intense like this, you're very much emotionally invested for sure. Yeah. If you could have coffee or cocktail with someone fun, who would it be? For me, it'd be Shaquille O'Neal. 
I love love that answer. (laughs) I just think he's like, I think he's the funniest guy. And he's just just so massive. Like, (laughs) compared to me, I just think it'd be a, if I walked into Starbucks and I saw, or Duncan, if you're me, um, and I saw myself sitting with Shaquille O'Neal, I'd definitely like do a double take. How tall is he? I think he's like seven two or something like that, and he weighs like over three hundred pounds. <laughs> oh my gosh! I didn't know that he was a funny guy. Well, maybe he's like super retired, so maybe I can book him on the show. <laughs> yeah, well, awesome. yeah. It, he does a um, commentary for the NBA now on uh, okay. ga- games on TV, and he's in a cruise commercial too. Yeah, he's doing like <laughs> yeah, he's on all sorts of ads, and I don't know. He just seems like he just does whatever he wants, and like. I just feel like he's just so authentic. <laughs> I don't know why. He's always had this like uh, affinity for for Shaq. Did you have a Shaquille? Plus, he, Go ahead. No, I, I never like I never really was a fan of him as a basketball player. Honestly, um, he did play on the Boston Celtics for at least a season, maybe two. And when he first signed with the team, he went to Harvard Square and he sat on a bench in the in the thinking posture. And he didn't move for three hours. Three hours? <laughs> and he just sat there and did this. And, like, people would come and, like, try to talk to him or take pictures of him. And um, and he just, like, that was his, like, welcome to Boston thing that he wanted to do. And he just went there. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Which is, I didn't know that. I think it's so quirky for, like, one of the best NBA players of all time just to, like, have this quirky personality. I don't know. Anyway, Shaq would be my guy. <laughs> I think I love that. And you didn't have a poster of him in your in your room. No, no. <laughs> yeah, he was on the Lakers, and Lakers and the Celtics are just not, they don't get along, so um, could never really cheer for him as a basketball no. player. You're, you're cheering for him in his post-basketball career. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Okay, what about you, Kirsten? I didn't put as much thought into this. I don't have a cool answer. Um, I don't know. Who would it be? Uh, Lindsay Hine. Yeah. Oh wait. We're essentially doing it right now. We're having. Yeah. I'm. I'm drinking tea though. Oh yeah, I'm drinking coffee. What if you had one message to send to the world? What would it be? Um, life is hard, but uh, yeah, love yourself, appreciate everything, um, be mindful. I don't know. Try to look at the world with the eyes of a child. Those are multiple messages. Those are a lot of messages. <laughs> That's good. Uh, for me, I would say, like, have a passion. You know, like, don't be apathetic. Mm. And so, it, which could be anything. You know, there's definitely a lot of people are passionate about politics right now. You know, maybe for me it's running. Um, but just have something that gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, figure out what that is and, and pursue it. That's good. That's really good because life would be really lame and sad if you didn't have something you were passionate about. And some people maybe just haven't found it and you just got to figure it out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It takes time. What are you loving right now? For me, um, I've been digging this Ben True, Des Linden and their mm. spouses coffee collaboration. Yes. And so, like, I got to sample a bunch when they were up in Boston for the marathon. And also, I stayed with Ben uh, to do some running up in New Hampshire and got to have coffee from the source, which was cool. Oh, fun. Um, But 
I like I'm a coffee addict, and so I like it for that reason. But also, it's just been fun to see runners um, being able to use running as a platform to uh, share their other passions. You yes. know, whether it's like you know Nick Simmons and his mountain climbing, you know Ben and his coffee. A lot of people with are doing blogs or podcasts or writing. Um, it's just been fun to like see the dynamic personalities of of runners able to to come forth I yes yes so true I love that I was just thinking as you were saying that I because I recently had been on the show um I my next goal should be to have will be to have Sarah his wife and then Dez's husband Ryan on the show because then I get then I'll have all four of them separately on that would be really cool yeah that's got to guarantee you a free coffee subscription at least well (laughs) and I mean Let's be honest, Des winning the Boston Marathon isn't hurting their little business getting kicked off, huh? Yeah. No, I know. Like, I think she was supposed to, like, come to a little promo event on Tuesday um, for the for the coffee company, but obviously it was a little tied up uh, the day after the Boston <laughs> Marathon. So it's, uh, yeah, that was, that was fun for many reasons. Oh, for sure. Um, okay, guys, what's the best, mo- do you guys read? What's the best, most recent book you've read? Well, I just finished Endure, which Tim is struggling through, but I just started Let Your Mind Run by Dina Castor, and I, I really like it so far. Uh, Kirsten, are you in our Facebook group? Mm, no. You need to join it because uh, we <laughs> we have a book club that we read a book together once a month, and I feel you, Tim, because... <laughs> Uh, two months ago, our book club choice was Endure, and I think about 20% of the people reading it finished it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I like, I read it in a weekend. I couldn't put it down. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah, I know. I mean, I, it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's just like it's just taking me, um, <laughs> taking me some time. So it's, I guess, part of the endurance thing, training, is finishing the book. Yeah, it's mine. <laughs> Yeah, but it is definitely like I'm just somebody who's more drawn to anecdotes and stories, uh-huh. and Kirsten's definitely got a research-oriented brain, and so she was like eating up all the data and all the statistics, and um, so I do think the book has a little bit of something for everybody. But for me, I, like I don't know, I've I read a like I so I went to grad school for theology, and we had to read like a book per week per class, and so I feel like I did a lot of my <laughs> reading in graduate school, and so lately I've just been reading like novels just like beach reads um john grisham yeah john grisham novels and uh one of my teammates tommy Curtin, is like big into fantasy novels so he got me hooked on this mistborn trilogy and (laughs) you're reading about like magic and wizards and all these things and I, i love it like i'll i'll read those books all day i just tried to watch harry potter you mentioned wizards and I was I was tired and kind of sick last week, and I was like, I'm just gonna throw this on, and hopefully it'll put me to sleep if I don't like it. I can't I can't do it. Glenn was my husband was like, that's because you're not like on the young end of millennials. You're never gonna like that, so stop trying to think you'll you'll like it. <laughs> See, I never watched the movies, but I I mean I grew up with the books. I yeah, think. I was like the age of them. Uh huh. I I love the books. I don't know. Yeah. And I don't like fantasy. I don't like wizards and that stuff. But I that, love the book. That's why I thought I couldn't get into it. I don't like like the things that aren't real. Um I have to ask though, you went to grad school for theology. What 
what made you interested in doing that? I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm a Catholic, and I went to Boston College, the Catholic school, and um, really just kind of discovered the joy of faith there. And so, for me, studying theology was like a personal pursuit of God. I wanted to like get to know God, <laughs> and so, um, and I was just in an amazing place to be able to do that from an academic standpoint um, and and a personal standpoint. The resources there to kind of water your faith life were, were very present. And so, um, yeah, so it was fun. Like I went there thinking I was going to be a biology major. Um, and I was as an undergrad, um, I was like big into the sciences my first couple years there. And then you have to study theology, uh, as part of the undergraduate program. And so did that for the first time and just really loved it. Like really loved this idea of asking these big questions and discovering meaning in life and, uh, and just growing in the, in the faith community. So, um, yeah, so it was definitely a, a worthwhile pursuit. Even, oh. um, yeah. So studying theology though, I'm like super interested in this. I grew up Christian and I'm still like, I'm always trying to figure out what do I really believe? Like right now I'm trying to get through the book and some people in the Christian community think that he's a little wacko, but I'm reading, um, Rob Bell's book, what is the Bible? And, um, it's really helping me break down like, okay, not everything. I think part of my, uh, stumbling in my faith has been like, it has been hard for me to wrap my head around that all of these stories actually happened. And he's painting this picture that like a lot of times they are stories trying to tell you something, um, like trying to teach you something, not necessarily that it physically happened. And that's kind of actually making me think, okay, this is more believable now. So my question is like going to the school for theology, did you study all religions and did you go into it thinking this is going to strengthen my Catholic faith? And then did it strengthen that specific faith? Yeah. So I mean, the majority of my studies were, were definitely um, Christian Catholic, but you had to do some, uh, you had to study other, other faiths as part of the requirements. And so as an undergrad, I, I studied a little bit of Buddhism. Um, and then as a graduate student, I took a few classes um, in Islam. And for me, taking those classes on Buddhism and Islam were really helpful um, to enhancing my Catholic faith. Like I learned so much about uh, prayer from my Buddhist professor and my Buddhist classmates about like the practices of meditation and finding inner peace and those things have enhanced my Catholic prayer life. And then from my Muslim classmates and professors, I learned so much about devotion and commitment to faith um, because they had this great sense that the faith was the number one thing in their lives. And so from them, I was able to take that and apply it to my Catholic faith. Um, and so, yeah, I was really enriched by the diversity of study there, um, learning the history of the church, learning, uh, you know, from different church philosophers over the years, learning different prayer practices. So for me, it was definitely an all-inclusive uh, way to approach growing in my own understanding of who God was and who Jesus is to me and um, what my role is in the church. And I, so I wasn't raised Catholic. I was baptized and then 
uh, I met Tim and he's, yeah, very religious. And so I would ask him a lot of questions. And one book that he suggested was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, um, which I really, really liked. And then what's the other author that came and spoke? Oh, James Martin. Yeah. A lot of James Martin's books are also... I haven't read any of James Martin's. I've read Mere Christianity a couple of times. Every time I'm like really doubting my faith, I'm like, oh, I better go read Mere Christianity again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because that's the crux of it all, right? It's like either Jesus was a crazy person or he really is is the savior. Because if you're walking around saying you're doing all these things and then it's not actually true, then uh, you might be a crazy person. (laughs) Yeah, that's the the risk of faith, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. Well, man, yeah. I didn't know that this was going to go here. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess I should have booked a completely different podcast conversation <laughs> on theology with Tim Ritchie. <laughs> um, I love talking about it, though. I love hearing uh, other people's stories, their faith journey, and and where they came from, and where they're at in their walk now. And um, I, I think it's just one of those things where you're constantly learning and growing, and you won't it won't ever stop until you actually die and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We talk a lot about how it's a, a daily conversion. You know, you don't become a Catholic or become a Christian or a Buddhist or whatever in a moment. It's like every day you kind of have to wake up and wrestle with these issues and commit yourself to the life of faith. And so, um, you know, it's like we, I've learned a lot and I, I do a lot of work in this overlap of spirituality and sport. Um, and so it's been fun to like see the elements of athletics that have enhanced my faith life as well, like discipline and focus and battling your doubts and, you know, commitment to the process and joy and gratitude and endurance. So it's been, uh, it's just fun to see that the ties between my running life and my faith life. Very cool. Um, so, okay. So you're reading, let your mind run by Dina Castor, uh, Kirsten. And that was, the other reason I asked you if you were in our Facebook group and joined because we're reading that book together for the month of May. So oh, cl- awesome. clearly we have the same taste here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to join. Yeah, you have to. So when's the move? When are you guys moving? June, like June 11th, Tim starts. So we'll probably move mid-June. We're going to Hawaii uh, <gasps> for our honeymoon the end of May. So An eight-month delayed honeymoon. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yep. So yeah, fun. Yeah, we had to wait for grad school to be over. So yeah, fun. you'll be able to jo- enjoy it so much more now. Yeah. Very cool. Well, you guys, congratulations on all your successes on graduating, Kirsten, on CIM win. And I'm excited for your future and what's to come in 2019 and 2020. And um, Tim, I'll be looking for you to uh, make that, that 2020 Olympic team. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks, everybody, so much for tuning in today. Thank you, Tim and Kirsten, for coming on the show. You guys were so fun to talk to, and I'm so happy for you and your new life together. I hope you enjoy that honeymoon that you've been waiting to have. So you guys can follow Kirsten on Instagram. She's KTR010. And then you can also follow Tim, and he is Tim Ritchie. That's R-I-T-C-H-I-E-W-T-D. You can also find me on Instagram. I'm Lindsay Hine, 626. 
You guys, make sure you join the Facebook group. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. That's where all the fun stuff is happening. That's where this community is hanging out. I would love to have you there. Link to join the group is in the show notes. And also, if you find my Facebook page, my actual Facebook page, I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. I've been doing, uh, I'm going to be doing live Facebook interviews on that platform. I just did one with Dina Castor last week about her new book. It was awesome. It was like 50 minutes and Dina blows my mind every time I talk to her. So hop over there, find that page and stay tuned for more live interviews to come. We're going to have one coming up with Becky Wade here soon. If you guys are looking for more content from me, a way to support this show, if you're listening every week and you want to get behind it and support it, I would love to have you join us on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Hine, where I put out bonus content. And yeah, thank you guys so much who are already supporting over there. And thank you all for listening each week. It means the world to me. Have a wonderful Friday. Have a great weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.